all you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome, one and all, to episode 262 of the SLS cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this is the Battle of Agrigentum episode of the SLS cast, because it turns out that uh, the very first pitched battle of the first Punic War was, in fact, the Battle of Agrigentum, which occurred in Sicily in 262 BC. And with that wonderful little bit of first Punic War knowledge, I, of course, am Matt. And coming to us all the way from sunny California would be our resident Sony employee, Tim. The Battle of Agrigenta. That's something that I would call my dealings with the toilet after I eat some really bad hot dogs. Indeed. I just, you know, figured what better way to go and truly bring in our first actual real live episode of the new year uh then talking about death and carnage just Why not? seems like a i mean you know. hell is apparent houston is freezing over for you we're we're dealing True. with the uh, record high temperatures in california something nutty's going on i'm telling you it is just uh i mean you know dogs and cats living together I mean, you know, it's crazy. Yeah. Bring on this crazy, pubic crazy, war crazy. you're talking about. <laughs> Indeed. So, how the hell are you, sir? I am doing fine. Back to work this new year. I miss sitting in front of you, uh, having a couple beers and shooting the shit. And yes, clearly too many beers for me. I, you know, there's a comedian uh, who is an older comedian now for sure um but about 10 12 years ago you'd know who he was right off ron white and ron white is known for his pontifications in you know, southern culture and what have you uh but one of the things he's known for is having a glass of scotch and he you know sips as he does his said pontification and one of the things that he has said in um in his many interviews is that he oftentimes enjoys the imbibing and uh, occasionally has gotten pretty shit-faced during his shows, which he thought was just fantastic and fun and great at the time. But then looking back, he realized how massively wrong he was. And I'll, now I, too, get to have that long-lasting regret. Although <laughs> our... Uh, conversation was fun, and I'll always remember digging in a cooler and talking about Poe Solo and Lemon Pledge. So and I guess you can we'll relive that. all those moments with the recap of episode 251. Well, it was at the beginning of episode 251. Or 261 even. Right, yeah, it was the recap of 260. But good news, we very well could be doing that again in April, because I'm going to be back in Texas for a wedding. Not my Woo! wedding, but somebody else's wedding in my family. So we could do this again. Well, now, won't that be exciting? I guess we'll find out. So, you know, maybe I won't be so stupid as, you know, but we can imbibe <laughs> smartly next time. We'll see. Maybe we need to hit record as soon as I walk through the door. That might work. That yes. might work. And then they yes. can feel the awkward embraces and all that good stuff. So anyway... 
All right. Well, then, uh, we have got a lot of work uh, that we're going to be doing for you this evening, folks. Shall we go ahead and just get right to work? Let's do this work thing. All right. Well, first up is our uh, inaugural 2018 catastrophic castration sound because, well... Check that mail sack. Check it good. Check that mail sack like you should. Oh, no! We suck again! Yep, you heard right, folks. No email. I don't know what the fuck. At this point, I just feel like I'm sad. So... I'm just going to be sad. But if you would like to save us from being sad, then please feel free to send an email to the show at slscast.com. And, of course, uh, we're still getting followers on Twitter, so that's always fun. And thank you very much for those followers on Twitter. If you'd like to do that as well, please follow us at the SLScast. And without further ado, I guess it's time for some news, is it not, sir? News it up. Then here we go, folks. It's the news. All right, and first up from me, from Reuters.com, by way of Stephen Kalin. Saudi Arabia begins screening films after decades-long ban lifted. Yes. Um, so, okay. Let, let me just start at the beginning, right? Because that's the best place to start. This comes uh, from Reuters out of Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia has begun screening feature-length animated children's films this weekend in a makeshift theater. Uh, this actually is dated from January 15th of 2018. After a 35-year-old ban on cinemas was lifted in the conservative, conservative Islamic kingdom. The first permanent ban on the, I'm sorry, the first permanent theaters could open as early as March, part of a liberalizing reform drive that has already opened the door to concerts, comedy shows, and women drivers over the past year. For now, the authorities are sponsoring temporary settings like the state-run cultural hall in the Red Sea city of Jeddah, equipped with a projector, a red carpet, and a popcorn machine. Quote, until now, there is no infrastructure for movie theaters, so we are trying to take advantage of alternative venues to approximate the cinematic form, end quote, said Madum Salim, uh, whose Cinema 70 brand organized the week-long screenings. Uh, it turns out that cinemas were banned in the early 1980s under pressure from Islamists as Saudi society turned towards a particularly conservative form of religion that discouraged public entertainment and public mixing between men and women. But reforms by, led by 32-year-old Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman have eased many of those restrictions as the government tries to broaden the economy and lessens its dependence on oil. Uh, so... There's much more to this article. I'm going to go ahead and stop there. But I, I would like to say that uh, the title of the movie that broke a 35-year ban in Saudi Arabia. Uh, Tim, are you ready for this? Um, is, yeah, is, yeah. is your body ready? I think my body ready. But can I, can I take a guess at least? It, was, it, <laughs> was it at least the star? No. No, it was not the star. Uh, I, I, I have a feeling that no, no amount of conservative editing will <laughs> make that movie presentable. 
in Saudi Arabia. No, unfortunately, I, or fortunately, depending on how you want to look at it, but for me, I would say unfortunately, the movie was the Emoji Movie. Yeah. Wow. And I, and I get Family Movie Weekend. That's that's fine. But surely there must there must be some better movies available in the family department recently than the fucking emoji movie. I I I just I don't understand. You know, is there anything about how the audience reacted to the movie? Like, did they enjoy it? Did they walk out? Did they ban films from here on out again? <laughs> well. The only thing that they have here is that under the subject or, or the heading here, it says more fun. It says, after watching the Emoji movie with his wife and daughter on Sunday evening, 28-year-old Sultan Al-Otaibai said Saudis are happy to see movies in the theater instead of saying at home. Quote, it's more comfortable, more fun to have a change of scenery and an activity on the weekend. It is a step that was very late in coming, but thank God it's happening now. End quote there. And that's the only thing they say about it. They then go back into other things about it. Um, and the thing is, is that they have a picture here um, of a what it, the the of what I guess is a what they're referring to as a cultural club, but they've kind of turned it into a makeshift theater. And they have a picture, a banner here of Captain Underpants. So, and, and I recently watched that movie. I, I actually did get a chance to finally watch the Captain Underpants movie over the weekend. The kids wanted to watch that and. Uh, it was available on Netflix, and so, hey, why not? Um, my father had taken the kids to go see it when it came out in the theaters, and even he had said it was a good movie. I'm like, okay, I'm a little unconvinced, but I sit down and watch it. It really was a funny movie. So why they didn't lead off with that one? No idea. And it's on Netflix also. Yeah. You so, know. I mean, it's, it's not like most of these people didn't, more than likely haven't seen it already. So, yeah, so that's that's what's up. Uh, the 35-year-old streak of cinema watching in Saudi Arabia broken with the fucking Emoji movie. Hmm. Yeah. So, what do you have for us, sir? Well, to uh, top that one, I'm going to go straight into uh, <laughs> the passings. <laughs> the, that's I, about as... I, I believe that we... Uh, I, I believe that's fitting, sir. It was, uh, you know, definitely fitting. Yeah, I haven't done any RIPs in quite some time, so I have three of them. Three for this episode. First off here. First off here. First up here from the HollywoodReporter.com. Terrence Marsh, two-time Oscar-winning art director, dies at 86. This here is written by Rhett Bartlett. And it says this. His body of work covered the David Lean epics Lawrence of Arabia and Dr. Zivago and Frank Darabont's Shawshank Redemption and Green Mile. Terrence Marsh, the prolific art director and production designer who received Academy Awards for his work on Dr. Zivago and Oliver, the Carol Reed film, has passed away. He was 86 years old. The London native died Tuesday at his Pacific Palisades home after a four-year battle, battle with cancer, his wife, former talent agent Sandra Marsh, announced. Marsh's meticulous design skills are prominent in Sidney Pollack's Absence of Malice from 1981, Paul Verhoeven's Basic Instinct from 1992, Richard Attenborough's A Bridge Too Far, 90, uh, 1977, and the Frank Darebount drama, 
the Shawshank Redemption, and the Green Mile, for which he designed the electric chair. To research the John McTiernan thriller The Hunt for the Red October from 1990, Marsh rode out in a Trident-class nuclear submarine courtesy of the U.S. Navy. Before then, his only knowledge of submarine interiors was what he saw in World War II movies growing up. He then worked on the 1994 follow-up Clear and Present Danger. Marsh's first Oscar triumph, which he shared with mentor John Box and Dario Simoni, was for Lean's sweeping epic Dr. Zivago from 1965. Shot in Spain, the, the film took two years to complete. Marsh's role in that film included scouting locations for the construction of upper and lower class neighborhoods. He said he happened upon a vacant parcel of land near paved roads that was earmarked for housing construction. The developer, quote, had put the roads in but hadn't yet gotten around to building the homes. We did a deal, end quote, Marsh told the Los Angeles Times in 2002. Marsh's second Oscar for Oliver from 1968 was shared with box Vernon Dixon and Ken Muggleston. That film was shot at Shepperton Studios in England across six sound stages in a back lot. The London Street set was built by some 350 men and included 10,000 cobblestone slabs. Uh, and the article does go on from there a bit more. Again, that was Terrence Marsh, two-time Oscar-winning art director, Dies at 86, written by Rhett Bartlett, and this was actually published on January 12th of this year. Next up, from The Hollywood Reporter again, Jean Porter Petite Starlet of MGM Films in the 1940s dies at 95. This here is written by Mike Barnes, and it was published on January 14th. And it says this, she appeared in such movies as Bathing Beauty and The Youngest Profession before marrying blacklisted filmmaker Edward Dimitrik, one of the Hollywood Ten. Jean Porter, a petite and vivacious supporting player in such 1940s MGM movies as Bathing Beauty, The Youngest Profession, and Andy Hardy's Blonde Trouble, has died. She was 95. Porter died Saturday of natural causes in Canuga Park, California, her daughter Rebecca Dimitrik told The Hollywood Reporter. Porter was married to writer-director Edward Dimitrik, one of Hollywood's ten, from May 1948, shortly after he had landed in trouble with the blacklist, until his death in 1999 at age 90. The two met after Porter had replaced Shirley Temple in his film Till the End of Time, came out in 1946, and they also worked together on her final feature, The Left Hand of God, 1955, starring Humphrey Bogart and Gene Tierney. A native of Texas, Porter appeared in such westerns as Home in Wyoming, from 1942, and The Heart of the Rio Grande, from 1942 as well, with Gene Autry, and in San Fernando Valley, from 1944, opposite Roy Rogers and Dale Evans. She was Lou Costello's manicurist girlfriend in Abbott and Costello in Hollywood, and Richard Erdman's ill-fated love interest Darlene in the Great Bunker Hill set film noir Cry Danger from 1951, starring Dick Powell. Yeah, and, and again, it goes on from there, talking about how she wrote several books, including an unpublished book called The Cost of Living about her and her husband. And uh, it's uh, actually pretty interesting. I uh, always knew of her. I've heard her name before. And I remember her, recognize her from an all these movies that she's been in. 
But whenever I think of the 1940s era, even early 1950s era starlets, I, I never really think of Gene Porter. So you guys definitely check it out from thehollywoodreporter.com. Gene Porter, petite starlet of MGM films in the 1940s, dies at 95. And then the last RIP. This is pretty disgusting because when I opened up this, Matthew. Mm-hmm. <laughs> When I when I opened up this uh, here tab, this is this is what was on the tab. Maybe don't comment it. Just well, yeah, you can comment on it. Not come on it. Comment on it. <laughs> Gonna work on not coming on it. I I can dig it. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> and this is why I run. Uh, an assortment of ad blockers <laughs> because I don't need to see that. <laughs> yeah, so apparently on the sun.co.uk, uh, apparently some of the most popular news articles here is rash horror couple with angry rash on backsides found to have worms burrowing in their skin. And it shows a picture of a white person's ass with a bunch with a rat. Uh, yeah. Anyways, from the sun.co.uk, Zodiac <laughs> cop dead, Dave Toshi dead at 86, Zodiac killer detective who led the failed investigation and inspired Clint Eastwood's Dirty Harry dies. Quickly here it says this, Dave Toshi passed away on Saturday aged 86 after a lengthy illness, his daughter Linda Toshi Chambers told the San Francisco Chronicle. Toshi was put on the Zodiac case after a San Francisco taxi driver, Paul Steen, was shot dead in his cab in 69. He was removed nine years later when he acknowledged writing and mailing anonymous fan letters to the Chronicle lauding his own work. Five people were fatally stabbed or shot to death in Northern California in 1968 and 1969, and their killers sent taunting letters and cryptograms to the police and newspapers. The murderer was never caught... He was dubbed the Zodiac Killer because some of his cryptograms included astrological symbols and references. Uh, and then skipping down a little bit here, screenwriters Harry Julian Fink and R.M. Fink said Toshi served as inspiration for their tough-talking cop Harry Callahan in the Dirty Harry movies. The villain in the first Don Siegel-directed film was named the Scorpion Killer, played by actor Andrew J. Robinson, and was based on the Zodiac Murderer. The characters of Callahan was played by movie legend Clint Eastwood in five films from 1971 to 1988. Another acting icon, Steve McQueen, based much of his San Francisco cop character in the 1968 movie Bullet on Toshi, including wearing a shoulder holster. Aside from his work on the Zodiac case, Toshi helped solve the zebra murders. In his last year of service, he was given an award for arresting a depraved sex attacker who raped pensioners and robbed their homes. Toshi's family said the retire inspector enjoyed music and books. And again, that was via the sun.co.uk. Dave Toshi dead at 86. Uh, and this here was written by Mark Hodge. All right, man, that's a lot of RIPs, though. But um, I do want to go back to Terrence Marsh. And I know we talked about Lawrence of Arabia and Dr. Zivago. But uh, one, I think probably the one musical I've watched the most growing up happened to be, I think, probably my dad's favorite musical, and that is Carol Reed's Oliver. Were, were you a fan of Oliver? I actually was more or less confined to 
uh, the Rogers and Hammerstein. So you didn't consider yourself no. a part of the Oliver family? I, I did not. Oh. I'm sorry. Well, uh, Ron Moody <laughs> is great. <laughs> and Oliver Reed and Jack Wilde. So folks, go check it out. And no, I'm not talking about the one directed by Roman Polanski either, but Carol Reed. Right on, right on. Okay, well, this is my last piece of news right here from Vice.com. And I do apologize for this. I'm not a big fan of Vice, but the the story seems kind of interesting. So I'm going with it. Uh, yes, Vice.com by way of Beckett Muffson. A Studio Ghibli theme park is confirmed for 2020. That's right, folks. In just a few short years, you could be rolling into Toros and Suit Sprites. Yeah! Uh, Studio Ghibli's beloved icon animation, My Neighbor Tortoro, Totoro, will be immortalized as a theme park within the Aichi Prefecture's Lush Expo Park. Uh, it says here that fans of legendary filmmakers Hayao Miyazaki and Iseo Takata, Takahata's classics Princess Mononoke, The Wind Rises, and the Academy Award-winning Spirited Away have flocked to the Studio Ghibli Museum in Tokyo since 2001 to get the most immersive possible experience of their films. Uh, this uh, That could change as early as 2020. The project completion date, Ghibli producer Toshiro Suzuki and Aichi Prefectural Governor Hideaki uh, Umura announced in a press conference. Suzuki is often the face of major Ghibli news as he confirmed Miyazaki's return to feature filmmaking earlier this year with the upcoming Goro the Caterpillar also due in 2020. So what do you think, sir? Are, are, are you, uh, do you think that given the prevalence of themed Parks, um, prefer, I mean, really and truly in Asia, uh, there's quite a few in China, uh, some, as you know, in Japan. We don't really, we, outside of Disney and Six Flags, which generally runs Warner Brothers, Looney Tunes kind of, uh, theming when it does any theming in that regard. Um, we don't really have anything. I mean, I guess if you want to count SeaWorld. Uh, or Bush Gardens, but what I mean, do you think that this is something that will be able to catch on, and thus something that could rival Disney and subsequently show up over I, here? I, I, I'm sorry, I, I think I need to hear the names of all of those people so, uh, that you mentioned: Hayao Miyazaki, Asao yeah. Takahata, Tos- Toshio Suzuki, and Aichi uh, Prefectural Governor. Hideaki Umura? I, I think it's interesting. I mean, <laughs> I I think that makes more sense than having an entire theme park for Marvel movies. Because at least with Studio Ghibli, each film is their own independent film. At least the best to my knowledge, I don't think there's a lot of crossover. True. Other than maybe the look and the style of the animation. So it makes each ride unique. So I, I like the idea. I think it's pretty cool. All right on. Well, if you would like to see the rest of this, there's actually a couple pictures up here, uh, conceptual art and stuff like that, and a little bit more to the article as well. So if you would like to check that out, head over to vice.com. Look that up again from Beckett and Muffson. Studio Ghibli theme park is confirmed for 2020. And that is my news, sir. Any other news for you? Yes. Lastly, to put the nail in the news coffin for this episode... 
Via the independent.co.uk, Paddington 2 becomes fourth film to hold a 100% rating on Rotten Tomatoes with over 100 views. This here is written by Jack Shepard and was published on January 16th. And it says this, As anyone who has seen Paddington 2 can attest, Paul King's movie is a lovable, marmalade-filled adventure that's utterly delightful. While the sequel may have been playing in UK cinemas for the past few weeks, Paddington 2 has only just ventured into US cinemas. Reviews from America publications are, therefore, only just reaching the internet, and surprise, surprise, they are glowing, becoming the fourth movie to have a 100% positive rating on aggregate website Rotten Tomatoes with over 100 reviews. The other three pictures to hold the same title are Toy Story 2, the documentary Man on Wire, and French-German drama Things to Come. Last year's Lady Bird and Oscar frontrunner also held the title, but eventually received negative reviews. The Independent's Jeffrey McNabb said of Paddington 2, Quote, Paddington Bear returns to the screen in a superior sequel so full of charm and good humor that it should delight audiences everywhere, end quote. Read the full review via this link provided at the end of this article. Again, that was Paddington 2 becomes fourth film to hold 100% rating on Rotten Tomatoes with over 100 reviews. Written by Jack Shepard via independent.co.uk. Slash arts, entertainment, films, news, Paddington 2, Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> .html. Yeah. What do you think about this? I'm not super surprised by this. I haven't seen the first Paddington movie, but I hear it's absolutely wonderful. And that movie received fantastic reviews. It really is. Honestly, uh, I'm sure I probably mentioned it in uh, last I'm sorry, I guess in 2016's recap of movies that I saw that necessarily didn't get covered on the show. Um, it, it's just a fantastic movie. And the, what makes it so great is that not only did they approach the film with love and care and an actual respect for the source material, but they also gave it all the subtle touches that a real film buff would love. I mean, there's, for instance, there's, there's one where Paddington is just arriving at the station in London and he's come off the train and he's literally sitting at the entrance of the lost and found in the station. And of course the family comes and sees him and only the lost sign in the background is lit and of course the style is the art direction and the style is beautiful and it sets up some great cinematography and so they come up and they come over and they talk to him and as soon as they ask you know are you okay is everything all right the lost sign turns off and the found sign turns on and it's just beautiful foreshadowing i mean and so you've got all these wonderful just amazing little tones and notes that make this movie just really sing and i now i want to watch it again so and i've got to do something to reinvigorate myself after shape of water because as we were talking about before um um oh gosh i can't think of her name sally hawkins Um, Thank you. Sally Hawkins plays the mom in Paddington, and I'm not sure if I'm ready for Paddington 2 to be the first movie that I see with her in it. (laughs) 
What, watch uh, Madi first, and that might put Maybe that's what we'll do. There we go. I can break it with Madi, and then I can go see Padding the Two. But no, seriously, re- all in all, uh, I absolutely um, highly recommend, please go watch Paddington. And I'm ha- had we not been frozen in, I probably would have gone and seen Paddington 2 today. So, yeah, you should see it. <laughs> and that's my news. All right. Well, I, 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 for those of you who are following along, we have not forgotten about the copycat throwdown between Jumanji, 1995's Jumanji, and Jumanji Welcome to the Jungle. Uh, it's just due to the way everything worked out and fell in terms of scheduling and recording sessions and, and drinking whatnot, and drinking and everything, we wanted to make sure to set this up so that all of our news that we could finally talk about would be current. And so next week's episode will feature the bonus segment of the Copycat Throwdown for 1995's Jumanji versus Jumanji Welcome to the Jungle. And without further ado, I guess it's time for the movies, is it not, sir? Let's movie it up. Move it to oh. it up. <laughs> <laughs> All right, here we go. It's the movies. <laughs> This week's movies are Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, The Greatest Showman, All the Money in the World, and The Post. So, where do you want to start, sir? All right. Can we go with my... I'm going to go... How about my my least favorite? I don't know if uh, you're in the same boat or not, but uh, The Greatest Showman. Oh, I, I, I'm going to have to say yes to that being my least favorite film of the ones we're covering. I mean, it's the lowest rated. We can say that for sure. Greatest Showman. 2017 American historical period drama musical, which is half the fucking problem, uh, film directed by Michael Gracie. Stars Hugh Jackman, Zac Efron, Michelle Williams, Rebecca Ferguson, and Zendaya. And well, here, you figure it out. Ladies and gents, this is the moment you've waited for. I am not a stranger to the dark. You're still just the tailor's boy. Better luck with your next job. Those people will never accept us. This isn't the life I promised you. Not even close. But I have everything I want. Girls, I think I've had an idea. Look out, cause here I come. Putting together a show. It's a place where people can see things they've never seen before. Okay. Who's that? And what is your act? I don't have an act. Everyone's got an act. People aren't going to like it if you put us on stage. Oh, I'm counting on it. I believe those are the words of a scoundrel. A showman. Whistling just a showman. Don't listen to them. They don't understand yet. But they will. So tell me, do you want to go? Where it's coming? Does it bother you that everything you're selling is fake? Did these smiles seem fake? We have more protesters every day. I 
tight, you freaks! You're risking everything you've built. Well, how do you think I built it? The world was ashamed of us. But you put us in the spotlight. You gave us a real family. Have you no shame? Father, the world is changing. Ever made a difference by being like everyone else. All right. So <laughs> the movie is clearly attempting to. I, I, I. Okay. It's not intentionally trying to hide the fact that it's a musical. But um, you don't necessarily get, uh, especially audio only, you don't really get the whole. Uh, musical feel. At least you can see that there's some kind of razzle dazzle and some kind of pre- present presentation numbers going on, uh, that are alluded to in the trailer. Um, uh, and, and it's not to say this is a bait and switch, but it's just that they're, the, the way that the movie is marketed didn't really help because much like the trailer, the movie is all over the place. And that is the biggest problem with this movie for me. I really and truly felt like Hugh Jackman, um, it, it's well acted for what it is. Um, and the fact, and, and it's just sad that it is a mess. Um, for starters, Hugh Jackman really wanted to flex his muscles again, show everybody that he could sing. So fine. Uh, he wants to make sure everybody remembers he can act. So fine. Um, and we have, we're, we're trying to, to give you a contemporary musical, um, and maybe hope that lightning can somehow strike twice a la Moulin Rouge from, you know, 15 years ago. And yet they're trying to put the lightning in the bottle with original songs. And so the original songs don't always convey the right tone, even though they do a decent job of at least attempting to establish the tone when they're doing their setups for their songs. Um, part of it is that period drama meeting musical only works if you're going to fully commit to it being a musical. And the breakdown for the film tries to split its period drama from the from the musical in terms of its being fantastical, which is a la more or less Chicago, also about 15, 16 years old, 17 years old. Um and i'm referencing these movies because they were really the some the the, the bigger screen uh, screen adaptations of musicals that have been at least somewhat popular or somewhat lauded critically for quite some time um and and it's and, and it's re, and it's movies like this that that make that and kind of make it impossible for musicals to translate anymore um and also i don't really think that the subject matter was the right angle as well because pt barnum um was a very very complex guy like 
he was a pretty decent family dude in terms of actually wanting to take care of his family. Um, he was philanthropic. Um, but at the same time, his entire life was basically motivated by money. And that was kind of the overarching thing that is missing from this film. They, they touch on it. They touch on it. Um, but not in the way that they should have. And especially in the way that they kind of did the whole him starting his circus, right? Um, against the backdrop of his museum or whatever. But I mean, we're talking about a guy who did the whole mermaid thing in real life. Forget what's stylized in the movie. Um, he did this, the, the whole mermaid thing. He's the guy credited with coining. There's a sucker born every minute. Um, he's a guy who discovered that people were actually taking too long in his museums. So he, really does put up a sign that says this way to the egress and people are like "Ooh, what's an egress what's an egress well an egress is an exit it is a way out and so people would then just be dumped onto the street because they didn't know any better and i mean so so i mean you don't get that kind of a balance in this film and i get I get what they're trying to do, especially with the whole, you know, freaks are people too and everything like that. But again, the movie, much like this review, falters because it's just too much all over the place. There's there's sparks of life there, but it's it's not all that great. 2.25 out of 5 would not see again. Well, the overall rating for this movie, I'll tell you right now, is going to be 2.25 out of 5. Because I'm giving this one a 2. I, I like what the movie is trying to do. I think at heart, it's trying to do good. It's a very interesting story. But I have to agree with you. I mean, I don't know too much about P.T. Barnum. But I've definitely heard about all the things that Matt has talked about he wasn't the most upfront, honest guy. In some ways, he is portrayed as a very not honest guy. But the movie just doesn't really pay attention to it. He is an upright asshole, a downright, or I guess a downright asshole, to the freaks, to the sideshow characters or, or, or whatever. They get all mad at him and they storm off and they sing these empowering songs, but nothing ever comes out of it. The movie never uh, addresses any of that stuff, and that's what bothers me. For example, whenever uh, he finds the singer, and she's giving a big performance in New York, and he's there, and you know somebody comes up to him and goes, P.T. Barnum, yo, your freaks are here. They're all dressed up, and they want to see what's going on with this lady you brought over. You know, They want to hear her beautiful voice, and he's like, don't give them seats. They'll stand in the back, standing room only. Well, they're up there. They put up with it a little while. They know exactly what's going on. And then after the show, they're having their little backstage party to celebrate the talent of this woman, the singing, beautiful singing woman. Rebecca Ferguson's the actress. And then the freaks want to get in to meet her. And they think, well, maybe, maybe, maybe there was some kind of mix-up. You know, maybe P.T. Barnum, you know, there, there were just no seats. They couldn't get a seats. But surely he's a nice enough guy to let us 
meet this woman who inspires them in such a way? Well, he doesn't. He basically tells them to go fuck themselves because they're ugly or whatever and slams the door shut in their face. And then that there leads into the bearded woman finding her willpower and then singing this song that I can't remember the name of it, but it sounds like every other Katy Perry song that is super popular and provides the listener with inner strength, especially if they're struggling with acceptance. Um, But, you know, they sing this big song out loud as they're walking through the opera house, through the lobby and outside, everybody is singing, basically saying that they're not going to let anybody tear them down. They're going to be themselves. They're going to be the best that they can be because they're just like everybody else. And then what happens? P.T. Barnum ends up uh, needing their help and they just outright help him out. You know, there's never that like clash between them and even Zac Efron. Really, the only clash you see is between... Zac Efron and Zendaya, which is a cute little moment. And then between Hugh Jackman, P.T. Barnum, and then the uh, and then the operatic lady who falls in love with them, which that is a whole other chestnut to crack open because you kind of wonder they've been on the road for so long and he's told her that she has kids. Why is this bitch getting upset that he's not going to fall in love with her when he's been totally upfront with her about having kids and having a wife and all this stuff? For those of you who haven't seen the movie, that's not going to make any sense. But I guarantee you, it will make sense if you go and watch the movie. Proceed at your own risk. This movie does indeed feature the music by the lyricists of La La Land, so you can expect that same kind of music. I thought the musical arrangements in the music itself was a little bit better than La La Land. It was trying to be its own thing, but then again, so much of the stuff clashed in The Greatest Showman that I really don't think it it really worked. Almost every song in the choreography is pretty much the same, you know, with the songs having these hooks, you know, hooks like modern day pop songs have hooks for the sake of hooking the audience into repeat listenings in a way that's not necessarily for the benefit of the quality of the song, but just so people can find it catchy enough. You know, it doesn't really fit into the overall story itself. It's like its own thing. That's a big issue with this movie is that whenever one of these songs come up, these big empowerment songs or whatever, the movie itself stops and they sing it. And you know what? It makes for a bitchin' track. You know, it'll make for a great CD, but as a movie, it just does not work at all. It's frustrating. And that song, This Is Me, the one where the bearded lady sings as they're walking through the opera house, that's the Golden Globe winning song. And the song just goes nowhere. Powerful songs and powerful characters become absolutely useless or they never really bring up any of these issues again. That's really my main problem with this movie. The teachings and the morals and the lessons are authentic and nice. That is what's supposed to be at the heart of the story, but none of it's really followed through with or even justified as to why it does play such a big part. I'm just going to end it there. Two out of five. I appreciate the style. I appreciate the look. You can't just put this movie on the hook and say, critics don't like it. People don't like this movie because they don't like the musicals from the 40s or 50s. They never got too serious. It was all about having a good time in the theater. 
but they knew how to meld together a great story, a great movie with great music. And this is what this movie lacks. The music doesn't match the movie, and the movie doesn't match the music. So two out of five for me. All right, then. Well, where would you like to go from here, sir? Well, what was your uh, next least favorite flick or lowest rated flick? I uh, don't know if I should tell you. I don't want you to be sad. Is it The Post? It is actually The Post. Really? Okay. <laughs> it It is actually The Post. It's okay. I I have a feeling I know why. You probably had the same issues as I. Well, then I guess we're about to find out. What what do you think, folks? It's the post. So, can I ask you a hypothetical question? Oh, dear, I don't like hypothetical questions. Well, I don't think you're going to like the real one either. Do you have the papers? Not yet. This is a devastating security breach that was leaked out of the Pentagon. The most highly classified documents of the war. The Times has 7,000 pages detailing how the White House has been lying about the Vietnam War for 30 years. The way they lied, those days have to be over. Okay, people are concerned about having a woman in charge of the paper, that she doesn't have the resolve to make the tough choices. Thank you, Arthur, for your frankness. Let's do our jobs. Find those pages. You're talking about exposing years of government secrets. Is that legal? What is it you think we do here for a living, kid? Ben, I might have something. It must be precious cargo. It's just government secrets. The New York Times was barred from publishing any more classified documents dealing with the Vietnam War. You'd publish. We'll be at the Supreme Court next week. Meaning? Well, we could all go to prison. To make this decision, to risk her fortune and the company that's been her entire life, while well, I think that's brave. If the government wins, the Washington Post will cease to exist. If we don't hold them accountable, who will? can't hold them accountable if we don't have a newspaper. Nixon will muster the full power of the presidency, and if there's a way to destroy you, by God, he'll find it. I'm asking your advice, Bob, not your permission. She can't do this. The legacy of the company is at stake. What will happen if we don't publish? We will lose. The country will lose. All right. Is this about the one based in Boston where they investigate all the priests who rape the little altar boys? <laughs> Isn't Mark Ruffalo in this one? <laughs> You're funny. That, that, that was Spotlight. I don't even understand. What's the joke? What's the gag? Because this is another movie about the wash. Wait, wait no, the other one was Boston. Yeah, though. the other one was in Boston. This is, a, this is another movie about a newspaper trying to uncover some secrets you know, and they're they're under you know there a lot of pressures put on them because it's a very here's, risque. Here's you know, yeah, a, and basically okay. So you, exactly, no, no, you you heard what Tim was saying, and and if you uh, caught the trailer just now, you get it. It's a 
2017 American political thriller film. It's directed and produced by Steven Spielberg. Uh, it stars Meryl Streep and Tom Hanks, along with Sarah Paulson, Bob Odenkirk, Tracy Letts, Brad, Bradley Whitford, Bruce Greenwood, Carrie Coon, and Matthew Reese in supporting roles. So, I mean, a stellar cast, a stellar director, great production team. Uh, and basically this is the story of how the post was the, um, uh, what was the paper that basically broke the news to the world that Vietnam was going terribly. Nixon, of course, retaliates, ends up at a Supreme Court battle. Um, and here's, here's what's wrong with this movie. The problem is, is that it, it's, It truly doesn't do anything for cinema. And that's really hard for me to say, given this cast and given this production team and given this director. It's literally a group of people reliving what they feel are the glory days. Capitalizing on a time today when people aren't really happy with their government either. And despite that, this movie does, it, it just doesn't bring anything, it, it just doesn't bring anything. Uh, it brings nothing to the table, it does nothing for the genre, and it does nothing for the prestige that it's trying to do. It doesn't mean that it's not a good movie in terms of a well-told story, um, well-produced, directed, and acted, because all of those things are true, but nobody cares anymore. And the reason why nobody cares anymore is because it's been done. It's been done with Watergate. It's been done with Spotlight. It's been done with all the president's men. Again, Watergate, but, you know, giving you an actual movie this time. Um, Zodiac, the, even the film like that. Anything and everything that's been done where they cover the press and how important and fundamental that it was. Well, congratulations. It was, it isn't anymore. Um, there are lots of things that have happened even in the last 15 years. Let's just keep it within 2003 to now. I mean, literally you could go with Fallujah. You could go with, I mean, we did some things like Zero Dark Thirty and stuff like that. Um, there are lots of things that you could go into that you don't need to sit there and make it about, oh, well, this is how it used to be when we used to stick it to the man. Um, and, and that's, and that's really where it's at. That's, that's really the problem with this movie. Um, I can honestly say that I at least like the movie. Uh, it does land at a three, but, um, it, it only lands at a three because it is a straightforward, well-told story that's well acted and well directed. Um, but it's not, it's not going to blow off the doors for anybody in any form or fashion of Academy Award accolades beyond things like set design, costume design, sound mixing, right, um, will be purely political and purely just, oh, here's another accolade because we love you so much. And that's it. So, three. What do you got there, Tim? 
I agree with you 100%. With this film, it felt like I was watching very talented actors and actresses acting. And it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's okay uh, to an extent, but the whole, the whole thing about movies like this is that you want to be entertained. You know, you want to be grabbed by, I was going to say the coattails, <laughs> but I wasn't wearing a coat. You want to be grabbed by the collar of your shirt and pulled into this movie to be a part of it. And the movie was quiet for the most part. You know, it was a fine audience. People were reacting. You know, the sound was good. It was a huge screen. It's just it felt like people were acting. It felt like I was watching Meryl Streep play this person. It felt like I was watching Tom Hanks play this person. And really, the only performance that I got a kick out of was Bob Odekirk's performance, because I thought he embodied, he created a character, which I enjoyed watching. Uh, just too bad he wasn't in more of the movie. Um, I hear a helicopter. Maybe that's Spielberg's helicopter coming after me right now to uh, <laughs> kidnap me and destroy this recording. But on top of the movie feeling like I'm watching talented people act. I also felt that the, like the movie itself was a little too melodramatic and a little too preachy for its own sake. You know, you do have the swooping John Williams music, and you do have the swooping Steven Spielberg camera movements. That becomes a little dramatic, because you know, if you're a fan of Steven Spielberg, and you're paying attention to this, and you're not being pulled into the movie, you're noticing how he's moving the camera when he's trying to invoke a particular response from the audience or a particular feeling. He'll do certain things. He does this bird's eye angle of a shot and then swoops in and it's very effective but it just felt like it was a little forced now in a way of justifying all that it was very old-fashioned and I can't help but to think that maybe it was distracting because he was trying to make it feel old-fashioned or shoot it in a in an old-fashioned way because I was watching it and I was thinking a lot of Oh man, the the movie we watched for the documentary about the soldiers who, the best years of our lives. It reminded me a lot of the best years of our lives and how Billy Wilder, how he moved the camera around to evoke specific emotions and how he got different shots for specific emotions. And um, it just felt like Spielberg was trying to replicate that instead of doing something new and authentic and fresh to pull the audience into the story instead of distracting us but unlike matt who gave it a three i'm giving this one a 3.75 out of five it's a very good movie still it's entertaining but it definitely has its faults so 3.75 out of five for me right on right on sir so are we just gonna keep moving upward, or we should yeah. <laughs> onward and upward? I guess huh? I'm sure the next one's all the money in the world, right? It is. Look at look at this. Look at it's like <laughs> it's like you read my mind. It's like you you know could also be because we might we may or may not have talked about uh, one of these movies <laughs> already. Let's see here. So yes, all the money in the world. You carry a gun, Mr. Chase. Never bothered. Ruins a lot of your suit. You used to be a spy. 
my child is a prisoner. Seventeen million dollars. All they will take is eye, is ear, the hand, and don't tell me you don't have the money. My former father-in-law only buys the best. It's time for you to do whatever it is he pays you to do. Let's hope you're half as good as everything else he's bought. You need to pay the ransom, Mr. Getty. I do not have the money to spare. No one has ever been richer than you are at this moment. What would it take for you to feel secure? More. More. I'm gonna find your son. Protected from every threat. Unless that threat happens to be me. Paul, I just want to go home. Paul. I didn't hire an ex-CIA officer just to pay people off. I hired you to do things that other people can't or won't do. We have to be willing to walk away. He's my son. I can't walk away. I don't think this is about money. It's about power. Power. Business. Terror. Tell him I'm coming. All right. 2017 crime thriller films directed, of course, by Ridley Scott. Uh, stars Kevin Michelle Spacey. Williams. <laughs> Kevin Spacey from the back and sides, <laughs> but never from the front. <laughs> Uh, Michelle Williams, uh, Mark Wahlberg, Romaine Duris, and of course, Christopher Plummer as J. Paul Getty. Now, um, apparently, uh, they really and truly did keep parts of Kevin Spacey in the film, uh, from a distance or from, again, from the back or like a, a, a top down shot, corner shot, whatever, Dutch angle, Dutch, reverse Dutch angle, I guess, um, because they needed it for, to, to limit reshoots. So he is actually Kevin Spacey technically is in the movie. Um, but you'll just never know where and which parts necessarily. So anyway. All right. So this basically covers the, uh, 1973, uh, Getty kidnapping and the rather dramatic turn everything took to, in order to get him back. Um, all right. So, this movie is really, really good. Uh, and the reason why, uh, it scores highly is because it's, it, it's a well thought out thriller. It's a, a decent, you know, air quotes as usual, based on real events. It's decent translation of said events. Um, they didn't go too completely off the rails. And Christopher Plummer is fucking amazing. Michelle Williams also does a great job. I I like that they showed some of the complexities of the groups of people involved in the kidnapping uh, and some of the nuances there, and I thought that was well done. Unfortunately, the one thing I don't like about this movie is Mark Wahlberg. <laughs> Maybe I'm just done with Mark Wahlberg. Maybe this just wasn't the best role. For Mark Wahlberg. But I never once bought into this character. I no longer saw... I, I, let, me, let me rephrase that. It's not I no longer. I never really saw a character. I saw Mark Wahlberg trying to be a character. And 
Um, and, and maybe it's because Mark Wahlberg has a rash. I don't know. It's entirely possible. But I literally never bought into him in this portrayal. And it breaks the movie up. And it's bad when, like, your primary... I I, I don't want to necessarily he's the protagonist because he's kind of an antagonist, really, in this in the movie. Um, mainly because of you know how he's su- supposed to be subverting everything and really moving everything forward and pulling all the right uh, contacts and pushing all the right buttons and everything. Eh, whatever. I just didn't buy in. Thankfully, the rest of the cast is good, and um, Ridley Scott at the helm did a fantastic job. So I give this one 3.75 out of 5. I think, I think that's, that's really all I have to say about it. I don't, I don't have a lot to say. I think it's an enjoyable film. Just didn't really like Mark Wahlberg in it. They will do things to Paul that cannot be undone for any amount of money. We have to pay. This simply isn't possible. My financial position has changed. Really? I mean, 30 seconds ago, you said it was a good day. I mean, I'm not all that bright, but I can multiply as well as you. With oil up as much as it was this morning, you have amassed another fortune. Well, what if the embargo is lifted and oil were to crash? I'd be exposed. I have never been more vulnerable financially than I am right now. Mr. Getty, with all due respect, nobody has ever been richer than you are at this moment. I have no money to spare. What would it take? I mean, what would it take for you to feel secure? more what do you got there tim i don't know about you but i really wanted to watch kevin spacey's version because i'm curious to see how his take differed from christopher Plummer, or how christopher Plummer's take differed on kevin spacey's i'd imagine kevin spacey's would have been more intense and maybe his performance would have had me a little bit more on the edge of my seat because i always thought he was kind of he was soft at heart Getty, based on Plummer's portrayal, and I always knew that he was going to cave in. I knew the story, like a lot of us, we all know the story, but I just really wanted that doubt as to not knowing when that was going to happen. And to be honest, that's the only issue I had with Christopher Plummer's character. I just didn't find him intimidating enough, for example, at the beginning of the movie when Michelle Williams and his son, his older son, when they meet each other at his house, when, I guess, uh, Getty discovers the family or whatever, and you see Michelle Williams just holding on to her husband and clinging on to him, but you just really don't know why, other than you hear some exposition that he's just an asshole, you know, he's just a cruel rich man who was never there for his kids while they were growing up. You know, when you see him, he's not that bad, but yet she has a reason why she's grabbing on to her husband in such a way. You could tell that could have been taken from the intensity, her reacting to Kevin Spacey's John Paul Getty. That's why I am very curious, more than just curious, to see how his portrayal would have affected the movie as a whole. 
Other than that, I too didn't care for Mark Wahlberg. I thought Michelle Williams was very good. She carried the movie. Uh, her accent felt a little too much, or sounded a little too much like she was doing an accent uh, from time to time. <laughs> I don't know if that was maybe because during reshoots, maybe she toned down the accent a little bit, or I I, I don't know. But I was happy to see that she got top billing over Christopher Plummer and over Mark Wahlberg. In fact, Mark Wahlberg, despite making a shit ton of money on the reshoots, he did get the third credit in the film. But overall, I thought it was a very good movie. However, I land on a 3.5. Ooh. 3.5 out of 5 with this one. I think uh, it deserves a lot more uh, box office cashola than it's been getting. It's kind of a, uh, a flop. I hope people decide to check it out whenever uh, it's available on VOD. Right on, right on. All right, man. Well, where, I guess, let's see. that. Oh, wow, that's actually... We're down to the last one. We are. We are. Oh, my gosh. Three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. Take a whistle. Hey, you. What the hell is this? Advertising, I guess. I could arrest you right now if I wanted to. Before you do that, how about you go have yourself a look at that first billboard over there? Mildred Hayes, why did you put up these billboards? My daughter Angela was murdered seven months ago. It seems to me the police department is too busy torturing black folks and eating Krispy Kremes to solve actual crime. Dixon, I'm in the middle of my goddamn Easter dinner. Sorry, kids. I know, Chief, but I think we got kind of a problem. Sunshine beating on the good I'd do anything to catch your daughter's killer. I don't think those billboards is very fair. The time it took you to get out here whining like a bitch, Willoughby. Some other poor girl's probably out there being butchered right now. I saw you on TV the other day. Oh, yeah? Yeah, you look good. I mean, you came across really good. I think that guy wants to get my pants. Father Montgomery. I'm sorry about Angela. You ain't trying to make me believe in reincarnation or something, are you? Because you're pretty, but you ain't her. But the town is dead set against these billboards. You know who threw that can? What can? How about you, sweetheart? Uh, no, I, I didn't really... <gasps> Took a poll, did you, Father? The more you keep a case in the public eye, the better your chances are getting it solved. And when I see the sign... What's happening with the billboard lady? He's tough as an old boot, mama. And as sad as the spectacle of these billboards might be... Go, girl. This reporter, for one, hopes this finally puts an end to the strange saga of the three billboards outside... This doesn't put an end to anything. This is just a start. Why don't you put that on your Good Morning Missouri Wake Up broadcast, bitch? All right. So, yes, 2017 black crime comedy film. Uh, I'm sorry, black comedy crime film. <laughs> black <Let's>... crime comedy <laughs> Oh, my God. Oh, boy. Starting off 2018 right, aren't we? Yes. Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri is a 2017 black comedy crime film. Good Lord. Written, produced, and directed by Martin McDonough. Uh, it stars Francis McDormand, Woody Harrelson, Sam Rockwell, John Hawks, and Peter Dinklage. Uh, film basically, as you heard, follows a mom who um, is upset that the police are not making enough progress fast enough on her daughter's murder and therefore puts up three billboards to, I guess, let's say, instill a little bit of kick in the ass that maybe 
the sheriff's department needs. Um, what, uh, all I can say is, wow, what a fan fucking tastic movie. I really, 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 really like this movie. Now, this movie, um, has amazing performances. And honestly, one of my favorite performances is Ashley Peter Dinklage. Um, it's just so great to see him doing a character. Um, because if you think about the work that he's been doing outside of Game of Thrones, it, it hasn't been that notable. Um, it's been noteworthy, not necessarily for good reasons, pixels, but it's been notable. And here we have a character that is finally something that just Dinklage is able to knock out of the park. Um, what, but where the movie really shines is, um, the relationship between Dixon, um, and Mildred. Okay. Mildred, of course, is played by Francis McDormand and Sam Rockwell plays Dixon. This is, you almost like really and truly almost see elements of the buddy movie in this relationship. And it's really interesting to watch these dynamics of these people um move throughout the film and in some cases where they move together they don't move at all um and it, and without spoiling the ending um the fact that these people have a path that allows them to come to terms with what's going on through the film is really remarkable. Um, at the end of the day, also another fantastic performance by Woody Harrelson. Um, he does just an absolutely outstanding job in this movie. I, I truly, truly enjoyed, uh, his, um, fi <laughs> final say, uh, on the billboards as the, as it was in this film. But something that, uh, this movie actually had a higher score for me before, uh, Tim and I actually talked about it. And, and Tim and I, uh, full disclosure, we talked about this back when Tim was here in December, but as you know, we never got there. We, we pretty much and, did the entire review for it before we actually recorded the show. <laughs> we, we really did. We really did. But Tim said something to me that really stuck with me. Um, and, having had the extra time to think about it and really reflect on it. Um, Mildred's character is, is, is a flawed character and, and excellently portrayed, but something that I thought that I enjoyed even coming to terms throughout the film and something that again, heavily reflected in the Mildred Dixon dynamic is that, her flawed character isn't something that the characterization isn't something that's truly overcome throughout the film. And sometimes that's the point. Sometimes we're left to decide. And, and yet that flaw is the handed. And it was something that I appreciated, uh, and thoroughly enjoyed, but, um, reflecting on it longer, I can see where that's a more of a detriment to the film than it should have been. And so, at the end of the day, this film gets a 4.25 out of 5. This was actually, like, at least a 4.5 out of 
maybe even 4.75, um, back in December. Um, but with, with time and reflection comes wisdom, ideally. So I give this one a 4.25, definitely my favorite of the week and just an absolutely outstanding film. I am really waiting, uh, to see how well it does at the Oscars. I guess we'll know more soon. Hey, fuckhead! What? Don't say what, Dixon, when she comes in calling you a fuckhead? And don't you Shut come up. in here... You get over here. No. You get over here. All right. What? Don't, Dixon! What? I'm you do not allow a member of the public to call you a fuckhead in this station house. That's what I'm doing. I'm taking care of it in my own way, actually. Now, get out of my ass. Mrs. Hayes, have a seat. What is it I can do for you today? Where's Denise Watson? Denise Watson's in the clank. On what charge? Possession. Of what? Two marijuana cigarettes. Big ones. When's the bail hearing? I asked the judge not to give her bail on account of her previous marijuana violations, and the judge said, sure. You fucking prick. Do not call an officer of law a fucking prick in his own station house, Mrs. Hayes. Or anywhere, actually. What's with a new attitude, Dixon? Your mama been coaching you? No. My mama doesn't do that. Take him down. You hear me? 4.25 out of 5. So bring us home there, Tim. What do you got? So when Matt and I first talked... Three billboards. I was probably going to give it a 3.5-ish, maybe even a 3. However, since we, or I guess since I've been back home in L.A., in California, I went back and rewatched the movie at the theater, actually just this past weekend. And I have grown the score from a 3 or 3.5 to a full 4-star rating. That is right. When I first saw the movie, I thought that the violence and the language and the forced story and character elements were excessive, and they undermined the film's overall greatness. All the excessiveness cheapened the quality and the forced story and character elements. Uh, what I mean by like character elements or even story elements is uh, like when Frances McDormand, she's in her shop that she works at, and suddenly this guy comes in and he's like, you know, I could have been the guy that that raped and killed your daughter. And basically she goes, was it you? And the whole point of the scene was virtually to make you think that this guy did this horrible thing to Mildred's daughter. And as the movie goes on, it turns out he did not. And so you kind of wonder, what was the point of that movie than just to make you think that? And to make you root for Sam Rockwell's character, who is, who becomes determined for one reason or, or another to find out what happened to Mildred Pierce's daughter. It just really doesn't work. It's very forced upon the audience. It's forced elements that doesn't make, I guess, for the right steps to get to the end game of the movie. And another thing I really didn't care for was that by the end of the movie, you were supposed to feel... I don't know if sympathy is the right word to describe how one is, was supposed to feel for Sam Rockwell's character at the end of the film, because he is an outright racist, he's an awful guy, he beats people, he does unspeakable things while abusing his power of being in law enforcement, and yet 
he's supposed to turn a, a new leaf and we're supposed to be right there with him. And upon the first viewing, I couldn't buy into it at all. It just bothered me more than anything else. And I realize especially that that is one of Martin McDonough's problems as a writer and as a storyteller, I guess. He has a tendency of overwriting dialogue just to make his point. Not only when it comes to character development or storytelling, but even when it comes to showing you that somebody is quippy and can spit dialogue out without really ever thinking about it, and it comes out like it's a jab to somebody, just to shut them up. For example, when Fred, when uh, Mildred has a little monologue when she tells the priest that the, that the priest can't judge her for putting up the billboards because he's a part of the the same club as the other priests who rape little boys, you know? She says all this, and it feels more like a piece of dialogue in a movie than it does creating a character. But what Martin McDonald does right is that the entire movie flows from beginning to end well. It's not trying to be something it's not midway through. It doesn't completely switch gears at all. It's the same from beginning to end. The tone does shift, but upon second viewing, I bought into it significantly more and I enjoyed it. I enjoyed these characters, despite their faults. And in some way, by the second viewing, I was able to sympathize a little bit more with Mildred and maybe to a less, even lesser degree with Sam Rockwell's character. And so I think that actually says something about the quality of this film, if it was able to do that within one additional viewing. It's my favorite Sam Rockwell performance, and if he wins the Oscar for this film for Best Supporting Actor, I'd be okay with it. And I implore you all, if, you go in, if you've seen this movie once and you didn't care for it, either... Use your movie pass and see it for a second time or get it on VOD when it's available. But it's a, a four out of five star movie for me. My favorite of the week, but definitely not the best movie of the year. Fair enough. I am curious. So you think this is the best Sam uh, Rockwell, even better than Moon? To be fair, I haven't seen Moon in quite some time. Uh, that's what I mean. That's the first thing I think of when I think of the best Sam Rockwell performance. And there's also uh, the, uh, Dangerous <laughs> Dangerous Minds. I forget. What, I think oh, God, yeah. replays the Gong Show host. Do we need to do a three squared for Sam Rockwell movies? Ooh, we might. Okay, we'll we'll talk about that. That might that might be coming up for 264. We'll see. Maybe. Possibly. We have a lot of movies to watch for because it's Oscar season. So it might have to wait a little bit. But we'll if, see. if you guys didn't know this by now, it's Oscar season. That's right. That's <laughs> right. All right. Well, that does bring us to the end of the movies. Next week's movies are going to be I Tanya, The Florida Project, and Roman J. Israel Esquire. And I believe without further ado, it's now time for the spiel, is it not, sir? Spiel on. Is there something wrong with the food? No, the food was excellent. Perhaps you're not happy with the service? No, no, no complaints. It's just that we have to go. I'm having rather a heavy period. And we have a train to catch. Oh, oh yes, yes, of course, we have a train to catch. And I don't want to start bleeding all over the seats. All 
Ride. Well, the music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we are, of course, the SLS Cast. You can find us at SLSCast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLSCast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can follow me, this is Matt, on Twitter at Nitwit12345. You can, of course, come aboard that information superhighway and track down Tim on Twitter if that's your heart's desire. Don't forget, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio, as well as track us down on the old SoundCloud. So until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Bradley Whitford, I get to say this. You need to be real enough to be believable, but you don't necessarily have to be real enough to be real. There is a distinction. Take care, cinephiles, and we'll talk at you again next week. Perhaps we should be going. Oh, very well, monsieur. Thank you so much. So nice to see you. And I hope very much we will see you again very soon. Au revoir, monsieur. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. You can find us over at slscast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. And of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>